You know, I read this week about a, an idea that a, a missionary writer by the name of Andrew Walls had about what it would look like if a time traveler dropped in on Christians at five different points in history. And what would it look like if the same time traveler stopped in at various points throughout history and dropped in on a Christian community? As he was writing about this, he thought, what about if they first went to A.D. 37, the first church at Jerusalem, and that this time traveler found himself in the midst of that? What he would find there would be that it would be a a bunch of people that didn't look much different than the Jewish people that were walking around, that their lives were very much Jewish in the way that they lived, and the only difference between them and the Jewish people in which they were around was their belief that Jesus was the Messiah that the Jews taught. The people would have been very poor, made up primarily of tradesmen and laborers that had large families and Their time together would have been spent around discussing Jesus as well as figuring out how they were going to take care of each other's physical needs. If you jump forward and that time traveler went to A.D. 325, he would find now a group of people not so Jewish, but people that had been drawn from all over the Mediterranean world. Many of the leaders by this time had developed a belief in celibacy, and so their leaders would have been practicing that. They were familiar with the ancient Jewish scriptures, but they were also familiar with a new set of documents called the New Testament that they would say was just as authoritative as the Old Testament. The group was culturally worlds apart from their Jewish brethren just a couple of hundred years before. That time traveler then moved to A.D. 6th century, the 500s, and found himself in Ireland where monks practiced spiritual disciplines like fasting, where they would put themselves in the position of the cross for hours to suffer in the name of Jesus. They believed in making their lives all about living in suffering ways so that they could sympathize with their Lord. They wanted those far and wide to understand who Jesus was, and in fact, you, he might have seen a group of people boarding a very primitive-looking boat headed for the Scottish coast where they were going to tell those there that they need to exchange their nature of worship practices and their bloody religion and seek the glory of God in heaven. Jumping ahead to the 1840s and his fourth stop on his tour, he finds an English missionary society speaking, seeking the Lord in different ways, now no longer putting themselves in the position of the cross, no longer fasting a whole lot, but serving in social activism. And instead of being like their Jerusalem brothers who didn't have enough to eat, or like the monks that deprived themselves of a lot, these were almost too well fed. They were in a society that was very open to understanding their gospel, but they were committed, just like the monks, to sending the gospel to different places. And so some were funding missions to the Far East and Oceania and Africa, and they were working to improve Life brought on by the Industrial Revolution. His last stop was in the 1980s in Lagos, Nigeria. As he steps into the streets of Lagos, Nigeria in the 1980s, he sees people walking down the streets dressed in white, dancing and singing, calling themselves cherubim and seraphim. 
They're inviting their neighbors to experience the wonders of God, the power. They're not social activists like the English, and they do fast, but not like the monks. They fast for personal gain. They talk a little bit more about the Holy Spirit than others, but they talk about the ways the Holy Spirit can inspire preaching, bring healing, and provide personal guidance. Now, as he traveled through all five of those time frames, what he would have found is a groups of people that were vastly different in their culture. But if you asked them if they were still connected to one another, they would have said, absolutely. And even as we stand here today, we are connected to all five of those groups. And the connection comes not in our cultural understandings, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm afraid that we have made the gospel of Jesus Christ much smaller than it actually is. And when we think about the good news of Jesus that spreads throughout 2,000 years connecting cultures and people from all over the world, we need to realize that the gospel is bigger than we've said. You see, the gospel is more than a four-point sermon. It's more than an evangelism track can show. It's more than learning our ABCs. It's more than four spiritual laws. It's more than the bland words and dull lives we use to display it. And it's more than we show through our lifeless worship and tepid commitments. The gospel is robust. It's a good word, isn't it? It means strong, vigorous, sturdy, powerful. The gospel is robust enough to help people with real problems. It's robust enough to have a grand vision of life. It's robust enough to withstand challenges that come from it in any direction. And the truth is the gospel is the story. Not a story, not one of the stories. It is the story. It's a story filled with beauty and grace, but also evil and deception It's a story filled with great victories and humbling defeats of love and hate, of selfishness and sacrifice. It involves kings and queens, princes and princesses, everyday heroes and nasty villains, and a cast of billions. All major players, no extras. It can be understood by the smallest child and yet confound some of the greatest minds that has ever lived. It revolves around a father's love, his children's rebellion, and the sacrifice it would take to win them back. And the story culminates in the greatest celebration ever known. Where those who are in the kingdom celebrate with the king happily ever after. And while it may seem unrealistic to think that way, this story is the most real story that has ever existed. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And over the next several weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to start that story and follow it from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. And this week is really not starting the story, but we're going to investigate the author. When I was in school, what you always had to do is you always had to write a book report. You had to write something about the author. And so today we're going to begin our time together looking at the story by talking about the author. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, take them and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Now we were here a few weeks ago. Lord led me to preach a sermon about our response in worship to a holy God. And we're going to come back to Isaiah 6, but today we're going to speak more directly about just a few verses in Acts chapter 6. About what God looks like here. Now let me just say from the very beginning, this morning 
I will be doing an impossible task. And so the reality is I will not succeed in my preaching this morning. All right? Some of you say, amen, that's good, that's every week, we're glad. This morning, what we're going to attempt to do is describe the author who is God. Now, there is absolutely no way in the world in 25, 35, however long the Lord leads this morning. Amen? However long. Amen? Good. We're here two hours today. That's great. There's no way. If I were to have 30 minutes, if I were to have an hour and a half, if I were to have four days, if I were to have my lifetime, that I can adequately describe who God is. Otherwise, he would not be God. If I can grasp and get my head around and describe him, then I am better than him in some way, and so he is not God. So you understand, I cannot do that today. Amen? But we are going to follow some biblical understanding of who he is, and in words, the best way we can, we're going to describe aspects of who God is. Verse 1 of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their face. With two wings they covered their feet. And two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. We're going to just stop there and focus on the first few verses of this chapter because it gives us a brief description of God. Now, you realize that there are very few moments in Scripture when God is seen or experienced by His people in the way that Isaiah does. And so when the veil of heaven is ripped open and we are allowed to get a picture into what God is like, we need to take heed of the description that is given there. And so this morning, there are six things that come from this passage of Scripture. And you understand there's no passage of Scripture that gives us a full description of God because none of us can. We're going to pull from other areas of Scripture and talk about it. But six things this morning that we need to understand about the author before we move forward. And the first is, God is. Now, I know that that may seem like a statement we don't need to start with. I mean, Isaiah just says, I saw the Lord. That means that there is a Lord. That means that there is a God. I mean, if you look at recent Pew Research statistics, they show that 92% of Americans believe in God. And so just saying that there is a God who exists may not seem like it needs to be a statement we say, but let me tell you something I believe. I believe in the years that are ahead, Christians are going to have to defend the existence of God like we have never had to defend it before. There is the new aggressive atheism out there. And I'm, those of you that know me, I'm not a chicken little kind of guy. You remember chicken little story, right? Sky's falling, sky's falling, right? I'm not that kind of guy. I don't think about things and, uh-oh, the world is coming to an end. But there is a, definitely an aggressive atheism that is saying that's going to evangelize the world. I saw this year they've started camps in America, all across America, that are teaching children how to become atheists. There have been books published in recent years by Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, Sam Harris, Letter to a Christian Nation, and Christopher Hitchens, who Charles Colson says one of the most brilliant minds he's ever seen, even though he's flat wrong. Christopher Hitchens' book was called God is Not Great. 
Dawkins claims that religious instruction, like we did this morning with our children, is a form of child abuse. Hitchens and Harris and others would say that religion is a dangerous toxin that is poisoning believers. And you look at that statistic, you say 92% of Americans, they're not making a big influence. But this is what that same study showed, that when you dig deeper, they say there are only 51% of people that are sure about that and believe that God is knowable. So if you take out what the Christian conception of God is, that shows that over half of our country at least does not believe in the type of God that we believe in. Statistics show that the number of people claiming on their census, and it'll be interesting to see how the 2010 census comes out on this, no religious affiliation is growing rapidly. Now, before we get too upset about that, what's also interesting is the number of people that are strongly committed to the Lord are growing. Now, I'm not talking about nominal Christians, and some of our numbers show that we're dwindling denominationally, but the truth is that the number of people that are really committed are growing. The people that are not committed at all are growing. We are going towards a society where that nominal Christianity is flowing away. And in my heart, I say, Glory be to God. Because there has been very little that has turned people off from the gospel more than Christians who say they believe and don't act like it or live it or really believe. And so we understand, first of all, that God is. And we're not going to go through all the explanations of, of, of how you can know God is besides the Bible. I mean, the Bible, from the very first moment, the Bible just assumes God's existence, right? In the beginning, God. You know, what's interesting is when we went to Brazil, one of the things in Brazil or in Africa or in India even, you don't have to tell them or prove to them God exists. They know there's supernatural forces out there. They understand. The problem is we've gotten too proud of ourselves and have outthought ourselves. The Bible never defends the existence of God. It never argues for the existence of God. The reason is the Bible just assumes that within each man is a hunger and a longing for God. So how do we know there's a God outside of what Scripture says? There are lots of things. It's interesting to see how things that scientists discover and think that they know are now turning into evidences for God. Big Bang Theory, right? You've heard that. Big Bang Theory is at the beginning there was a Are you here this morning? At the beginning, there was a big bang, right? That at the center of the universe, that somehow, someway, all this stuff just bang, things came out, flew out everywhere, and magically in the midst of everything flying out everywhere, all this mass of matter that nobody has a clue where that came from, but that mass of matter came out. It formed these little balls that circled around these big, huge flaming balls, and on one of those little balls that around these huge, big flaming balls, somehow enough stuff happened that life began to form, even though nobody knows how or when or where. And as it did, we gradually proceeded to the point that you and I are sitting here talking about how in the world did we get the Big Bang. Now, in the midst of that Big Bang, it happened in such a way in such a random way that this planet came to be finely tuned for everything we need for life. The right angle, the right amount of air, uh, the, the right proportions of gases in the air, all that. It led a guy that is not known as a Christian theologian to say this. 
The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. It would be difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in the way except as an act of God who intended to create beings like us. The guy that said that is a guy named Stephen Hawking, one of the most brilliant minds of our age, not considered a champion of Christianity. You have the Big Bang, the intelligent design, the regularity of nature, that it just runs and that water always boils at the same temperature, water always freezes at the same temperature, certain natural laws are in place that nobody can explain if it's random acts. You have beauty that we see and understand. You have moral obligation with us. us. There is the problem of sin where we feel guilty for the things we do, and if we're natural selection and things just happen, there would not seem to be any need for that. There are all these things. There are many places you can go. Tomorrow I'm going to put up on my blog, and we'll have sheets out here, further resources that you can look into for the existence of God and something else we'll talk about later. But the point of all that is just simply God is. The second thing that we want to talk about today that comes from this passage and comes from our understanding of Scripture is that God is God. Some of you may have seen on our, my Facebook and Twitter this week, uh, and I know when I say that some of you could care less about the face Twitter, whatever it is, all right? Twitter book, whatever, I don't care. But on there I put the, a conversation that my six-year-old and my three-year-old had this week. We were driving down the road. We were going to the park, actually, and, and they were in the back talking, and they've gotten to where they just talk back and forth to each other, and, um, and I rarely listen in. But something was happening. Susan was on the phone, one of the good songs on the radio, and God just turned my attention to their conversation. And as they're talking, Eli just kind of looked at Luke and said, we need to get you a Bible. And Luke said, well, what's a Bible? And Eli said, it's a book, and in the book it tells us about Jesus. And Luke just said, well, who's Jesus? And the Sunday school teachers got mad at me for putting this up. They said, we talk about Jesus every week. That's not the point, all right? Although I did sit in on three classes this morning to make sure. No. And Eli just looked at him, and I thought it was hilarious, because by this time I looked up, and we've got one of those mirrors that you can drop down and see him to kind of see, and he just went, Jesus is Jesus. That's just it. And this is one of those kind of duh statements, those of course statements, but God is God. What do I mean by that? He is set apart from all of creation. Humans, animals, plants, angels, He is apart from all creation. There are characteristics of God that no other creature could ever have because they're created by Him. He is set apart from us. He's different. I mean, (laughs) one of the things I love about this passage, and we're going to jump around the passage, not go verse by verse, but you see the seraphs, and they're covering themselves. So seraphs were, were angels. They were holy figures, if you will. They were in the temple. They are not people that had free will or choice or they had chosen the right way, and, and they were not people that had sin that was marring them. And yet, even though their sin is not marring who they are, when we think of our shame, we think of our sin, they are still covering themselves in the presence of Almighty God because He is just different, set apart, completely other than we are. I mean, they're covering their faces. They're covering their feet, which was a sign of, of, of feeling naked. And they were 
flying, doing what they're supposed to do. But the point here is they did not feel worthy to be a part of the scene in which they were. God is different than us. Well, how do you say? The Scripture teaches us that He is self-existence. He's not created. He could never be created because if He were created, then there would be a being greater than Him. He's self-sufficient. He has no need. There is nothing in Him that is necessary to be filled. He did not create this world because we fulfill some need. He created this world just out of an overflow of His love and His creative ability. He is infinite. No limits. None. You can't measure Him. You can't contain Him. We try to put Him in a box. You can't put Him in a box. I think I mentioned this before, but I saw a quote that said, this universe is so big because it's going to tell us how too small it is. Because Scripture says the universe cannot contain the Lord. He is infinite. He is eternal. I did some reading on this topic this week, and I just want you to be real. I just want to be real honest. This stuff just blows my mind. All right, it's just one of those things I can't wrap my head around, and that is perfectly okay. Reading about the eternity stuff really blows my mind. Okay, I mean not just kinda, it really. And to think that God is outside of time, not in time. He did not have a beginning, so time marks the beginning of something. He is not in time. That means He's not in time right now. He is in eternity right now. And in eternity right now, He has no past, present, and future. He just is. Now, if you say you can get your head around that, you're lying. All right? Because every bit of our existence is in time. How many of you are wearing a watch right now? All right? How many of you, even though you're not wearing a watch, you look at your cell phone or something regularly to see the time, all right? Yeah. That's all of us. We are run by time. For some reason, there is a clock on that wall right there. I say for some reason because you all know by now I don't look at it. I don't pay attention to it, but it's there. God is outside of all of that. He's not confined by time. He doesn't have time limits. When we quote that verse for the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. That doesn't mean, as some people have taken, that they take it and say, well, that means that there have been 6,000 years. That means a seventh year, 7,000 years coming. And on the seventh year, that's the seventh day. God's timing is a day. He's not in time. God's never not on time because time doesn't matter. He is eternal. And He is unchangeable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. No changes. He never changes for the worse, and He never changes for the better. He didn't have any need to. He just is. The author is the author. He is God. Here's the third thing. God is powerful. Powerful. Now, it's not shown here necessarily explicitly in Isaiah chapter 6, but it tells us that he sees the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Part of what that is all about is the authority that God has. Seated on the throne is the place of power 
high and exalted as a place of authority. The train of his robe showed that his power and authority extended throughout that place. He's powerful. This is where we get into the omni-words, all right? Scripture teaches that God is all-powerful, also known as omnipotent. That he can do anything he wants to do. Now, I love, sometimes you get into that discussion and uh, people say, well, could God make a rock that he can't move? Anybody ever heard that question? Can God make a rock he can't move? C.S. Lewis once was asked that question, and he said, nonsense is nonsense no matter how you frame it. He said, and that is nonsense. He said, we're thinking in our terms. We're not thinking in a God who is all-powerful. That is, every power that can be had, He has and can do and can move. Part of the reason that this new atheism is sprouting up is because of this belief that came in with modern times and is extended into our own about the idea that miracles cannot happen because there are physical laws that prevent miracles from happening. And Scripture says over and over again, God doesn't care about our natural laws. He created the natural laws, and so if He wants to break them, He can. Amen? He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. That means He knows everything. Listen to what a guy named A.W. Tozer says about this. He said, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. And because God knows all things perfectly, He knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He's never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor except when drawing men out for their own good does He seek information or ask questions. He just knows. There's a new movement out there in theological circles asking whether or not God knows the future. And there are writers that write about this. It's called open theism. That there might be lots of possibilities he knows about, but he doesn't know what we're going to choose. And my answer to that is it's a bunch of baloney. It's foolishness and heretical. Scripture teaches God knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen and what has happened. He knows it all. Not only is He all-powerful, not only is He all-knowing, He's also all-present. He's everywhere. It's a Johnny Cash song, right? I've been everywhere, man. And they list off all those things. Anybody want to come sing that for us this morning? Okay, good. We don't need anybody. You know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. I've been everywhere, man, all right? And he lists off all the places he's been. Here's the reality. Johnny Cash hadn't been everywhere. When he was alive, he didn't get everywhere. He may have traveled a lot, but he didn't get everywhere. And here's the truth. He wasn't everywhere at all times. Now, when we think of God being omnipresent, our thought is he's everywhere on this earth at all times, which is true. But God's just not everywhere on this earth at all times. He's everywhere that is everywhere. 
You mean God's all over Mars? God's all over Mars. Those undefinable planets that are out in that solar system, God's there. He's outside the universe. I mean, remember, the universe can't contain him. It's immeasurable. So he is everywhere. Now, the reality of that means if he's everywhere, he's here. Now, that doesn't mean in a pantheistic thing he's part of everything, all right? There are those people out there that they touch the seats and they say, watch out, the seat is pushing back because God is in the seats. That's foolishness, right? We understand that His Spirit is here. We understand that His presence is here. It's omnipresent. Three other things real quickly. First of all, God is perfect. Verse 3. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. The word holy there has been translated in our language to mean perfect. That's not exactly what it means, but for these purposes today, it does serve that function that He is completely different in us because there are attributes of God that are perfected. That we know in some part, but He has in Him perfected. He didn't have to perfect it. It was when He has always been, it was perfected. Things like holiness, being set apart, being pure, love, mercy, truthfulness, faithfulness, goodness, patience, justice. He holds all of those perfectly. Here's the reason. When things happen in our lives that we don't understand, that we don't really have a right to question why God. You see, we are coming at it from a very immature, imperfect place And God is in perfection looking out over all. And these characteristics, justice and mercy and love. When people say, how can a just God do this? The truth is, we don't have any right to ask that question. Because our form of justice comes only from Him. And it is the imperfect form of the perfect in Him. He is perfect in holiness and love and mercy and truthfulness and faithfulness and goodness and patience and justice and other things that are too long to list. Here's number five, and I'm going to spend about a minute and a half explaining this, all right? God is triune. Say that with me. Triune. Right. That means there are three in... Anybody understand that? Good. Neither do I, all right? But Scripture teaches that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all one. That somehow, in the understanding of God, that we cannot have, and it's perfectly okay for us not to understand it, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit exists as three persons, yet as one God. That doesn't mean that He, as some heresies have said, that He slips on different masks for different occasions. It doesn't mean that He fills out different modes of, of living. It means that he, are, he is three distinct persons while being one. And people say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's not. But there are, is evidence after evidence that the Trinity is taught in the Bible. Genesis 1, all is created. It says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We go to the New Testament, we find out that the agent of creation was Jesus, the Son. And when he gets through creating, it says the Spirit hovers over the earth. When you get to the New Testament and Jesus says, it's time to go out and you're going to go out and you're going to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
When you get to 1 Corinthians and he's talking about all that's happened, he says there's one Father, there's one Son, one Spirit, three in one. There have been some of the best minds that have ever lived that have tried to come up with ways to explain this, and they've all failed. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. But I know it to be true. So I believe it, and I'm thankful to God for it. So God is triune. Here's the last one. God is personal. Here's the thing that is the most amazing to me out of all of that. Because you see, when I look around this world and I see the creation and I think about who we are, it is not hard for me to understand that there is a God who created this, that this had to come from somewhere, and that whoever created this, all that we see has to be powerful and has to be knowing, has to be an unbelievable being. But what is amazing to me about God is that this God who is otherworldly, that we cannot comprehend, that is perfected in all these traits, that is more than we can even put our heads to thinking about, that that God has spoken, has written, and is calling out for a relationship with us. We're going to read past verse 4 because the sound of the voices, the doorposts are shaking, and, and you know this. Isaiah says, Woe to me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I have lived among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. By the way, there are a lot of scholars that believe what Isaiah actually saw was the pre-incarnate Christ. All right? But I have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. And at that point, we could fully expect, and God in his justice could fully say, you are right, and you are ruined, and you are done. The truth is, God at any point in our lives, when he sees me act in accordance to things that are opposed to him, when I sin, when I fall, when I make mistakes, when I say things I shouldn't, God has every right in his justice to say that it's over, it's done, you're gone. But verse 6, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand. Live coal, you know what that means? It was hot. Which he had taken from the tongs, with tongs from the altar. I don't know how hot it has to be for a seraph to take it with tongs, but it was hot. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go? And he said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go. All that to say this. This God, that is all that we can describe. And I hadn't even touched the tip of the iceberg on the majesty and glory and wonder of God. That God is also personal and wants an intimate, loving relationship with you. And the story that we're going to talk about starting next week is all about a God who wants a relationship with people. And just as he cleansed Isaiah here, he sent his own son to die for our sins, to cleanse us of our sin. And just as he allows Isaiah to be part of writing the story, of living the story, he wants you and I to be a part of living this amazing story that he has written. I don't know where you are in your relationship with the Lord. I don't know what God means to you. 
I don't know if you're one of those Americans that believe that there is a God, but you can't know Him. You can't know for sure He's there. My guess is if you're here today, then most of you are people that believe in a personal God that you can know. But the question is, do you know Him? I don't mean in fullness. We can't. But I mean, do you know Him? God's intent is for each person in this room to be in a loving, intimate, meaningful relationship with Him. The thing I love about God is when you enter in that relationship, there is no doubt in your mind that He will sustain you and keep you and care for you. Yesterday, I had the privilege. I know we had a a wedding here at the church. I was not here. I was in Dyersburg. My cousin, who is six weeks younger than me, we grew up together, was, was married yesterday. And I was able to perform the ceremony. And as I stood there before the two of them, one of the things I talked about is that, that love in a relationship, in a marriage, is a love that even when tough times come, you just get through it. And one of the things I didn't say, but I thought about as I was leaving there is, the truth is, while the two of them were standing there that day, they were two people. And ten years from now, they'll be two different people. Now, I don't mean completely different, but there will be differences. I am not the same as I was 11 years ago when Susan and I got married. Now, hopefully I've changed for the better, but in some ways that's not the case. I don't need any amens right there, all right? But as they sat there and they made their commitments to each other, I thought they were making commitments to each other not knowing what the future brings. Here's the thing about God. When I enter into a relationship with Him, there is one thing for certain. He is the same. He never changes. And more than anything, He desires for you to live your part in His story. 